So what's going on, everybody? It's good to see you in the house today. Well, y'all been asking for it, and fall is here. Everybody's like, we want the sunshine back. Uh, well, listen, hey, um, let me ask a question. How many of you guys in this room would be honest enough to say that you laugh, you find it funny when someone falls? Let's be honest. I mean, I don't know what it is. Like, we feel bad saying it, especially in church. Like, Christians shouldn't laugh when somebody falls. Like, we should compassionately and empathetically go over and help them up. But let's just be honest. It's funny. It's not funny when people laugh at us, but it's funny when we laugh when somebody else falls, right? A couple of years ago, I was walking uh, out of the last church I pastored. It was a, it was a two-story church. Um, and to leave the church, you'd walk out the back hallway, and there were seven or eight steps out to the back door, you know, these big glass doors. And I was walking out. My wife was there, our three kids. Uh, we had a guest speaker in, a friend of mine. He had, I think, one or two friends with him. So we're leaving, shutting all the lights off. And I went to take a step off the first step, and I overshot it just a little bit. But don't take much. And my foot came and slid down and caught the heel of my shoe, but my weight was already forward because I got some forward weight. Come on. <laughs> and, baby, I just dove down these steps face first. My backpack, laptop went flying. I saw, y'all are already laughing. This ain't even funny. Y'all hearing the story, right? I almost died. I saw my life flash before me because, for real, I thought my face was going to smash right through that glass and all this handsome would be all cut up. It was horrible. I'm, so I'm laying on the steps. Oh, my wife, my kids an evangelist, a guest speaker, everybody's laughing. It's horrible, but it's funny when people fall, right? It's a funny thing when somebody falls. I, people laugh at me. I didn't like it, but I will laugh when other people fall. My wife just several weeks ago sent me a text and I thought was a little ironic in anticipation of this series that I knew was coming. Uh, it was lunchtime and she sent me a text. I picked up, picked up my phone and her text said something like this, honey, I'm so embarrassed. I just slipped and, and fell in this restaurant, to which I'm like... <laughs> Because I'm picturing right her falling. She's like, yeah, one leg twisted in front of the other. And I did like a reverse split. And so um, I happen to know the owner of the restaurant. So I called him and told him I was Alexander Shannara, right? <laughs> really, I told him, I said, hey, what's, what's the chance? You got to have security cameras in this place. Like, what's the chance I can get a copy of this video? And so you guys know I'm pretty open with my life. Like I share the, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly of the Husky household. So how many people would like to see the video of my wife falling in this restaurant? Are you crazy? I would never show that. Do you want me to get divorced? I can be like, yeah, let's see it. No, you just got to use your imagination like I did. You don't have to use your imagination. We have all watched people fall, and it is funny. And here's the crazy thing. You have to ask yourself the question because you feel like you shouldn't laugh, but you do laugh. Why do we laugh? There's, you know, there's actually a science behind it. Scientists and sociologists have gathered together and a, a certain group have come up with what they call uh, the benign violation theory, the benign violation theory to help explain why humans laugh at situations like that. And here's basically what the theory says. It's a violation. When we see something that's uh, not typical in continuity, when we see something that's an extreme to life, when we see something that doesn't fit to normal behavior, for example, that's why clowns are funny, because they wear big feet and big noses. That's outside of what's normal. So when we see that, we laugh. The second thing that has to happen in order for it to be funny, not just outside of the ordinary and outside of the normal, but it has to be benign. It has to be harmless, right? I mean, if you see somebody fall and break a leg and you laugh, something's wrong with you. 
So it has to, like, you got to see, because typically we see people upright, taking normal. In fact, some people got some swag to them, right? But when you see somebody slip and fall and you know they didn't get hurt, that junk's funny. Come on. And so there's a science behind it. But here's the thing that really makes it out of the ordinary or, you know, it doesn't have continuity, is that when people fall, people fall in a very ungraceful way, right? I mean, if people just kind of tipped over, it wouldn't be so funny. But the fact when people fall, like they, the faces they make, the way they fall, we do splits. If you fall over 50, you're in trouble, right? Everything that happens on the way down and then your facial expressions once you're on the ground, it's funny because people fall in such an ungraceful way. And so thinking about that, I wanted to step into week two of this series that we started last week entitled Slippery Slope. And basically the thought behind Slippery Slope, here's what a slippery slope is and the way we're using it in this series. It's an idea, a course of action, which will lead to something unacceptable, wrong, or disastrous. And what we're talking about through this series is this idea that all of us are aware of. We may not necessarily use some of these words depending on where we're at in our spiritual journey. But the reality is all of us face temptation. All of us are tempted in our daily life to do the wrong thing. And some of us, we're not just tempted, like we go through with it and some of us fall on the slippery slope of sin. And what I want to talk about in week four, I just want to give you a heads up because I want you to come in ready. I want you to come in fired up is that no matter how hard you've fallen and how far you've fallen, God's grace is great enough and significant enough to overcome all of your sin and pick you up again. And so we're going to talk about that. But last week we tackled this idea by talking about this young guy by the name of Joseph. Joseph was, was a slave. He got sold by his brothers into slavery, right? Great family tree. And you can go back and listen to it. But basically, we talked about this idea of situational awareness, that if you're not aware of who you are, if you're not aware of your status, of your position, of your authority, if you're not aware of your finances, if you're not aware of your good looks, if you're not aware of who you are, and you're not aware of the situations you're in, if you're not aware of the environment you're in, if you're not aware of the people you're hanging out with, if you don't have situational awareness, it will sometimes put you in situations that you probably shouldn't be in. And if you're not aware you're in them, you are far more likely to slip on the slippery slope of sin. And so today, I want to kind of back up a little bit, and I want to talk about this idea of, of falling gracefully. Because, again, typically when we fall in the natural, and it's funny, we fall in such an ungraceful way. But when people fall in sin, when people fall in disobedience to God, when people go down a path of disobedience, it's a far cry from funny. And so there's a guy I want to look at. His name, is, uh, his name is King David. And the reason I want to look at him, and most of you know who he is. You've been in church for a while. King David was the second king over the nation of Israel. And there are a lot of things that exemplify his life, right? King David was a guy who loved the Lord passionately. He was a worship leader and a songwriter, not just a king. In fact, many of the Psalms we read is him like declaring about how good God is. When he's going through a tough time, his songs are a worship song to God. It's a prayer for depending on God and crying out to God for help. So this is a guy who passionately loves and serves the Lord. In fact, it's his heart that draws God to position David to be the king over the nation of Israel. It's his love for God that God leverages to put him in position. But you can love God and still fall. You can be in love with Jesus and still fall short. You can love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and still at times give in to temptation. And that's exactly what we see in the life of David, that in spite of him being a man after God's heart, he's a man who still got into trouble. 
And the reason I look at David for this reason primarily is not just who he was in the good qualities of his life, is that unlike a lot of the guys in Scripture and the girls in Scripture, person after person, character after character, Old Covenant and New Covenant, we find people who are human just like you and I. They're not put on a pedestal and demonstrated as perfect. They're regular people that have everyday struggles and real battles. But the thing that exemplifies King David beyond his character and his love for the Lord is that in the specific instance we're about to read is that David falls in such an uncharacteristic way. He falls so ungraciously. He falls in a way that is so, that is so ugly that I think if we'll take a page out of his playbook, flip the script, we can apply it to our life and hopefully save ourselves from some trouble in life. This is a story we're going to look at of King David in Bathsheba. Here's where the story picks up, right? So 2 uh, Samuel chapter 11, we're going to read verse 1 through 5. Everybody get on board. Come on, everybody, let's lift our voice together. Some of you might be the only time you read your Bible, so let's do it together. Let's do it with some, with, with some volume. Come on. In the spring of that year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites, and they destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. And late one afternoon in the midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of his palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. And he sent someone to find out who she was. And he was told, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And then David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, she sl he slept with her. And she had just completed the purification rites of having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. Now, here's where I want to go for a few minutes. I, I, this is going to take a moment to really get where I want to go, but I think there's some things we can learn right here in the beginning that are important in our spiritual journey, in our walk with God when it comes to this idea of being tempted. And so a couple of takeaways right here, right in the beginning. Here's what the story says about David. Here's the setup, right? He's the king. He's over the nation of Israel. And the Bible introduces this story and says, hey, it's the springtime. And during the springtime, most kings go out to battle. But right, King David didn't go out to battle. David stayed in Jerusalem. Here's why this, I think this is important. The Bible points this out because anytime you're out of order, you're in trouble. Anytime you're not in the place you need to be or should be, you're likely going to get yourself in trouble. I believe that God positions us and appoints us to certain places in certain time for a reason. And even though some of those places might look dangerous or might look like it's a place of sacrifice, I want you to know that the safest place that you can be is in God's will. And I don't mean everything's always going to work out, but I mean when you have God's grace on your life, that's the difference maker. And David, he is not where he's supposed to be. Kings are supposed to be out in battlefield. And instead of going out in the battlefield, he stays in the place that he thinks is safe, and he stays in the palace. And the ironic thing is, the victory was to be found on the battlefield, and the defeat was found in the palace. Joab and his army won in the war, but he lost the fight with temptation in the house, which tells me if you'll be where you need to be, and I'll be where I need to be, that's the place where we can walk in victory. Come on, church. But we got to be there. And when you get out of order, you're likely to get in trouble, right? How many of us in this room, we have a story, right? We're a teenager, junior high. We go to our parents. Hey, mom and dad, I'm staying the night at Billy's house. And then we went to Billy's parents and told Billy's parents, hey, we're staying the night at Steve's house. 
And we didn't stay at either one of their houses. We went out and wreaked havoc on the neighborhood. Come on, tell me I'm not the only one. I don't see anybody. Kids are like, mm, that never happened to me. <laughs> Come on, you know why? We got in trouble because we were in the wrong place. And I want you to know that the sweet spot of success is found in the middle of God's will. And there are some of you in this room that God is trying to prompt you into ministry. God is trying to pull you into opportunities. God's trying to position you in a profession, and you're pushing back against it because it's not comfortable for you or you don't feel like it's the right time or season. But you need to recognize that while it may not look in the natural as the best place for you, it's the safest place for you. While you might avoid the battlefield, that's where the victory is. Come on, somebody. But God wants to put us in his place and in his time. And then it says this, not only is he out of order, but much like we learned about Joseph last week, David has no situational awareness. David gets out of bed. He's a mid-afternoon nap kind of guy. We got any mid-afternoon nappers? Some of you are going to nap as soon as you get home. Some of you might be napping right now. <laughs> Some of you are going to sin and not be a part of serve day because you're going to go home and nap next week. I meant to stop that, but I didn't get it in my filter in time. Oh, David gets out of bed. So here's the picture, right? He's supposed to be out in the battlefield. Instead, he stays home where he thinks it's safe and sound. <sighs> Takes himself a nice nap, walks up to the top of the palace. And this is where he spots Bathsheba. And I know it sounds, it sounds innocent, doesn't it? Like that poor guy just walked up to catch a breath of fresh air. How dare that naked woman show herself in front of him? That's what it sounds like, doesn't it? But here's what you need to know. The highest point in the city of Jerusalem is the king's palace. Number one. Number two, this is at the end of the day. It's late mid-afternoon. Now, here in American time in the West, our day is from midnight to midnight. In the East at that time, it was 6 p.m. to 6 p.m., which means they're winding down their day. They're shutting it down, which means they're getting their night shower, eating their dinner, getting ready to go to bed for the next day, which means this. If you want to see skin, what you want to do is you want to go to the top of the king's palace right around midday, which means he should have been shocked by what he's seen because it was all around him. Are you hearing me? You have to have situational aware. He didn't walk up and say, oh, my goodness, what's going on here? He knew exactly what he would find situational awareness. But the Bible says this, right? It says that, that he's up there. He, he, he sees what's going on. I don't think he just, he didn't just notice her. This is the, the word. This is the translation. The word says, really, the word is he watched her. Come on, man, let me help you out. Because Jesus said, if you look at a woman with lust, you committed adultery in your heart. You can't help it if a beautiful blonde walks in front of you. Ain't nobody going to help me with that. All you men just left me out there. I ain't amen in that. <laughs> Come on, women. Your turn's coming, men. You can't help it if a beautiful blonde walks in front of you. Amen. Holy cow, you guys left me out there again, didn't you? I'm not going for three. Uh-uh, I'm smarter than that. All right, women. But what men can help, you can't help looking because something steps in front of your vision, but you can help from continuing to look in lust. The problem isn't in the look. The problem is in the longing. It's like the couple walking through the grocery store and a man spots a beautiful blonde walking by and didn't just catch a glint but looks over his shoulder and watches as she walks by. When he looks back, he finds his wife looking at him and says, I hope that's worth the trouble you're in. See, it's not the first glance. The way the guy who discipled me say, you can't keep a bird from flying overhead, but you can keep it from making a nest in your hair. You can't help it if something walks in front of your vision, but you can help it by not looking at it, longing after it, and lusting for it. And David stands up, and the Bible says that he looks and he watches her. He watches Bathsheba. 
And here's the problem is he has lots of opportunities to back out of the slippery slope of temptation. He has lots of opportunities to get himself out of the situation that he's gotten himself in. He should have been on the battlefield, but he wasn't. He shouldn't have been on the roof at this time, but he was. He shouldn't have taken a second look and watched Bathsheba, but he did. But it wasn't too late. Instead, he invites her over, and she comes. He doesn't just have a conversation. He has a booty call, and he sends her on her way and finds out several weeks later she's pregnant. And we watch this story unfold, and there's a few takeaways that I think are important for us to learn about this cycle of temptation. Because if you've not realized it, temptation's real. Come on, somebody. It's, it's a part of our journey. It's a part of life. You don't even have to be a Christian to recognize that temptation is real. And so here's the cycle of temptation. James, the brother of Jesus, he records this. Watch. James chapter 1, verse 14 through 15, he says this, every voice. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. And these desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Here's four words you need to write down. This is the cycle of temptation as it evolves into sin. We see it happen in David's life. And if you're paying attention, you can see that it happens in ours. The first thing is desire. Desire. We've talked about this a lot. Every desire you have, every natural desire is a God-given desire. When you come out of your mother's womb and you mature into a person and you can mature into young adulthood, you find that these desires are growing in you. All of those desires are God-given desires that God wants you to fulfill in a God-designed way. Let me just give you a couple, for example. I believe that God's put in us a desire for success. Come on, somebody. I believe God wants us to prosper. He says, I know the good thoughts I have for you. God doesn't want you to fail in life and fail in marriage and fail in ministry. I believe God wants you to be prosperous. I believe God wants you to have a lot of a fruitful ministry. I believe God wants you to succeed in life. It's not the American dream. It's a God-given vision for us to succeed in life. Come on. That's a God-given desire. Not just success, not just success, but I believe a strong self-image. I, don't, I believe any time you look in the mirror and you hang your head in shame or guilt, that's the enemy speaking to you. Because whether you're a size 20 or a size zero women, whether you're hitting 400 on the scale or you're still in double digits, you were made in the image of God and you were beautiful in spite of what this world would tell you. I believe God wants us to have a strong self-image knowing we've been made by him. And sex. Here's three examples. God gave us sex. God made sex to be enjoyed in the context of marriage. And so those are God-given desires. But what happens? We get deceived to, fill those, to fulfill those God-given desires in a dishonorable way. Instead of success, we take success and we leverage it into greed. And instead of taking the blessings that God's given us and showing generosity in return because he's been good to us, we're going to give back because he's given. We get greedy. Instead of success, we get proud. We look in the mirror with arrogance of how wonderful we are. And we leverage ourselves above the maker. You know, instead of sex being made in the context of one man and one woman in the context of marriage for life, we leverage it outside of marriage and we take it in all kinds of crazy directions. And so the second part is deception. See, the enemy will come and start whispering to you, hey, you deserve one. You get a day off. You can start Monday. Hey, everybody's doing it. Hey, it's, it's like you're married, right? And will lie to us. And the enemy does. How many of you have ever had that conversation in your head? 
Like you start making excuses. It's happened to all of us. And it is part of the cycle of the enemy to take God-given desires and whisper to us for us to fulfill them in a way that dishonors God. And if you've never had that conversation, you ought to be scared because that means you're skipping right from desire right into disobedience because you're already walking in deception. Which means ultimately once we are led astray, that's what the word says, that we're enticed and we're led astray. That ultimately where it leads is disobedience. Instead of doing for God what he's given us to do, we dishonor God and we disobey him. And ultimately, God says when we live a life of cycle of giving in the temptation and following on the slippery slope of sin, that that disobedience, that sin ultimately leads to death. And here's the crazy thing is we hear that last word and we push back. And I don't know about that. And I want you to hear something. God's given you the authority and the ability to pick your choices, but it's up to him to pick the consequences. And he says, when you live a cycle of sin, it always leads to ultimate separation from the Savior, which is spiritual death. And so we can see this happening in our life, which means if we'll have situational awareness, if we'll live in the power of the Holy Spirit, if we'll live with some, with, with, uh, with some not just awareness, but with his strength, God say, man, I can help you maneuver through the temptation of the enemy and God will empower us to live a God-pleasing life. But what happens when we still fall short? See, the question I've wrestled with going through this, again, thinking about people following that, falling naturally, again, it's such an ungraceful fall. That's what makes it, makes it funny. Is there a way? Here's a question I want to tackle for a few minutes. You know, if you're here and you're saying, hey, I don't, I don't sin still, let me just give you this scripture real quick. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. So if you're like, hey, I don't sin anymore, you just lied and I win. Preacher win, you lose, right? We're, we're, sinning is never okay but it's part of the journey. I don't think we should ever anticipate the sin, but it's part of our journey. Struggling and battling and wrestling, sometimes we lose. I believe God's given us the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit that we can overcome that. But unfortunately, the reality of our journey is sometimes we fall. Can I just get an amen? That's part of it. So the question is, right, how do we fall in a way? Here's the question. Is there a way to fall gracefully? If you're going to fall, if, if you make a decision like David and, man, you just go the wrong way, you fall on the slippery slope of sin, if you give in to the temptation, if you surrender to the disobedience, if you're going to fall, is there a way to do it right? See, because I think what's important, it's not always just what we do, but it's what we do next. It's not just what we do. Like a lot of us have been in the place where we sin. All of us in this room have been in the place where we've messed up, fallen short, missed the mark. But it's what do we do next? Because what the enemy wants you to do is to stay down, to fall down and stay down and to wallow it in a little while and to make it a lifestyle, not just a decision. What God wants us to do is even if we fall, in his strength to get up again and walk in victory. So the question is how do we fall gracefully? Because King David, he is an awful example. In so many ways, his life should be an inspiration to us. But in this one situation, in this one story, in this one scenario, he is such a disappointment because out of all of the characters in Scripture, he falls so ungracefully. In fact, listen, your subsequent decision is often your most significant decision. Again, it's not what you do, it's what you do next. What did King David do next? He doesn't go to battle. He's on the roof. He sees Bathsheba. He calls her over. He sleeps with her. After his fall, what does he do next? 2 Samuel 11, verse 6 says this, Then 
David. Everybody say that. Then David. You need to insert your name in there. Then Steve. What will Steve do next? After I fall, what will I do next? Because what you do next determines how your path will go and how your story will end. Here's what David did. He had an opportunity here, even this late in the game. After this many failures, he still had a chance to redeem the moment. And you know what he does instead? Most of you know the story. Immediately he gets this, this plot in his mind. This woman that he slept with one time, she's pregnant. He doesn't want to be blamed as the father. So he comes up with this ingenious idea. He calls Uriah Bathsheba's husband off the battlefield and falsely commends him. Not because he wasn't a worthy soldier, just because the only reason he got uh, Uriah off the field was to tell him how great he was, to pump up his ego, and then to tell him this. You've worked so hard, and you fought so valiantly. You deserve some time off. How about you take some leave, go home, have a warm bowl of stew with a big wooden spoon, because in my mind, that's how they ate it back then. Sleep in your own bed and David was a smart man. He's not seen his beautiful wife in a long time. If you've not seen your beautiful wife in a long time and you go home and fill your belly and get in bed, he knew what was coming next. And the goal was that Uriah is going to go home, sleep with Bathsheba in nine months when she has a kid. He's going to say, hey, that was mine because he could trace back. That's when he was on leave. Can anybody in this room trace back when your kids like they were born? You can look back nine months ago and said, I know when that happened. Oh, come on. I can. A couple of them. So that was the goal. That was it. And so he brings, he brings him in. He pumps him up. And here's the crazy thing is Uriah is such a man of character and such a man of ethics. Instead of going home and eating the, eating the food his wife would prepare and sleeping in the comfort of his bed and laying in the arms of his wife, he lays at the gate of the king because how can I go out, go home and sleep in comfort when Joab, my general, and all my fellow soldiers are on the battlefield and he slept at the gate of the king. The next night, King David gets this great idea. I know what I can do. I know how I can send him home. And he brings him in and parties with him all night. They got a cager going on. He gets Uriah drunk because he says, surely if he's drunk, he's going to go home and sleep with his wife. Instead, even in a drunken stupor, Uriah still has the character shining through, and he sleeps at the gate of his king. And in desperation, still there's an opportunity to redeem the moment. But in desperation, King David thinks of the last moment plot to have Uriah killed. If I can't convince him the baby's his, then he can't know about the baby at all. And he writes a letter to General Joab and says, I'm sending Uriah back to the battlefield. I want you to put him on the front lines. I want you to put him in the heat of the battle where the shields are clanging and the swords are banging. And when Uriah's out there, I want you to retreat and abandon him on the field because I know that he'll be killed. And that's actually what happens. And not just Uriah, he's not the only one who loses his life in the plot of the king to cover his sin, but there are several other soldiers that lose their life. That's why David fell so un gracefully. He had so many chances to turn it around and he kept going down further and deeper. Here's what you need to know. And this is what I want to talk about for a few minutes. You're taking notes. The two worst decisions you can make after you fall. Again, it's what happens next is hide your shame or shift your blame. Hide your shame or shift your blame. See, hide your shame. That's exactly what King David did. Instead of owning it, instead of saying, hey, it's, it's, on, it's, it's on me, what did he do? He just tried to cover it up. 
And a lot of us, man, we get in a bad place in life. We make some bad decisions, and we just try to cover it up with success, or we try to cover it up with drugs, we try to cover it up with whatever's going on, the busyness of life, and try to ignore that that thing ever happened. And here, I want you to know, listen, you can't cover sin with more sin. You can't cover a lie with another lie. You can't get out of a hole by digging it deeper. And man, King David, he don't know what to do. I think he did, but man, he's just in the hole. Man, how do I get out of this hole? I got Bathsheba pregnant. I know, I'm going to lie. I know, I'm going to plot. And man, he just keeps digging the hole deeper. I'm telling you, that's exactly what the enemy wants to do. He wants your hole to get so deep that you never think you can ever get out of it. But God wants to reach down with the mighty hand of God and give us the grace to pull us up. But you can't do it if you hide your shame. You can't do it. And all of us in this room, man, right? We've all tried to hide stuff. I was, um, I was 16, and some of you guys know, right? I, I partied a lot in high school. And so one, one Saturday, I'll never forget this, one Saturday early morning, my dad walks in. And, you know, I'd probably been out till 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning drinking and partying. And um, when I was out, I always had, like, my own personal cooler, kept it in my car, but I put it in my trunk when I went home and, whatever, was this partying too hard, didn't think about it, <laughs> left this cooler in my back seat. And that one Saturday, my dad walks in my room, he's like, hey, Stephen, wakes me up. I'm kind of still in a hungover haze. It's early in the morning. He says, Stephen, I need your keys. I need to use your car. And I was like, uh. And like immediately I thought, cooler, beer. And so like I jumped up out of the bed and I'm like, what do you need? And I, I tried to put my pants on. I had them on backwards and just tell me what, he's like, well, I, you know, what's wrong with you? And I was like, I'll go, just tell me what you need. I'll, I'll go to the parts store for you. And he's like, uh, how about you walk out to the car with me? Like he knew something was going on. I can remember that story as if it happened yesterday. But I can't tell you what happened once we got to the car. Like that's just a, that's a true, like I think me not knowing what happened probably tells me what happened. But like, right, we, we try to cover things up. We try to hide things like people don't know. Here's what you need to know. Watch this. Let's say that David's plan worked perfectly. Let's say Uriah came back, was commended, went to his home, slept with Bathsheba. Bathsheba got, was pregnant. She gave birth to the baby, and Uriah thought it was his. Looks strangely like King David, but hey, what can I say? And he really believed, let's say that. Here's what I want you to know is here's the reason you can't cover your shame. Here's the reason you can't hide it because there's three people who will always know the truth. God will always know the truth. The devil will always know the truth. And you will, you will always know the truth. And one of the worst places to live in our spiritual journey, everybody hear me, if you want to serve God, you can't do it in this spot. It is very difficult to serve God in between the voice of the enemy condemning you and the voice of the Holy Spirit convicting you, you will be overwhelmed with voices. God wants you to move out of that place into grace. And the only way you can do it is to come clean and stop hiding your sin. Come on, are y'all hearing me? Number two. Number two. We just don't hide our shame. We shift the blame. You guys come up and help me out for a minute. When I say shift the blame, how many people here have ever done this? I know I'm not the only one. You're out walking and, you know, you trip. Anybody here, if you're tripping, you trip in public, like you look back so everybody thinks it was something else. Like you're like, what tripped me? You, clumsy. I remember I was coming out, of a, coming out of a store one time and I tripped coming off the curb just as a car went by. It's like perfect timing for them, horrible timing for me. And I hear someone in the car say, uh, is your first day on your new feet? I was like, you ain't going to come back and say that. <laughs> 
I felt like an idiot. Just a few weeks ago, my wife and I went to the movies and, you know, we weren't going to get anything, but then you get there and the popcorn smells so good. And then they upsize you. Okay, I'll take a larger both and throw in some milk duds. So we're walking in the movies, right? It's a little bit dark. And I tripped like an idiot up the steps. And the, the whole place is full. Like nobody's watching the previews anymore. They're watching me look like an idiot. And so what I did was I shifted the blame. I look back, I'm like, oh, what's on that step? Because <laughs> we all do that, right? When I say shift the blame, I mean you're blaming someone else or something else for your fall. And we all do it. We blame the choices we make based on who raised us, based on the job we're in. We blame our bosses. We blame our siblings. We blame our spouse. I got three kids. Sometimes when they have fought over the years and sometimes kids fight, I've heard my kids say this when they're like losing their mind in anger. They'll look at me and say, she made me mad. He made me mad. Nobody can make you mad. You control your emotions. They respond. You have to choose how you're going to respond. You have to own it if you're going to overcome it. Are you hearing me, church? Come over here. So here's two 35-pound weights. I think it's heavier every service. Here's two 35-pound weights. Here's what I want you to see with this. When you have a decision in your life and you make the wrong decision and you go the wrong way, it is always going to bring shame and guilt. And I just want you to know, if you've not figured it out yet, shame and guilt is heavy. What God wants you to do is God wants you to know, like, you got to own it. you got to make it yours. This belongs to me. What most of us want to do is we want to shift the blame. And anytime you shift the blame, the weight of shame increases. Here's what I want you to do, because this is what people want to do. They want to hand it off. Go ahead and hand it off to somebody. And let's just see for a second how heavy that gets. See, when you hold on to it, it's yours. It belongs to you. You know it's your choice, your decision, your bad mistake, your sin. And it's a little easier to hang on to. But how many people in this room do we want to blame somebody else? It's her fault. It's culture's fault. It's government's fault. It's where I was raised. It's who raised me. It's the world I live in. It's our decision, and we have to own it if we're going to overcome it. How you doing? We got four minutes and 25 no. seconds left. No Three? No, sir. Two? Nope. You sure? I'm shaking. <laughs> We're three services in, so he held it like really a long time. Not like the first time. <laughs> <laughs> so here's what God wants us to do. God doesn't want us not just to take ownership. God doesn't even want you to hang on to it. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to bear the weight of shame. Jesus came to take the guilt of sin. God doesn't want us to give it away, and God doesn't want us to hold on to it. God wants us to give it to him. Come on, somebody. And if you'll not face the fall, you cannot own the grace. If you do not face the fall, you can't own the grace. If you don't say that's mine, you close the door to God's grace coming in your life. Because you can have sin without grace, but you can't have grace without sin. You can live your whole life and reject God's grace, and that's your decision. Like, I don't need God's grace. I'm good. You can sin without grace. But the only way you get grace is to recognize you have sin. That's me. The Bible says that the, the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Some people think, I'm too strong. I don't need the cross. I'm good. I don't need the cross. Jesus came for the weak, the weak things. He's chosen the weak things of the world to confound the wise. God's saying, man, that if you'll open up your heart and you'll be humble in your sin and say, man, God, I blew it. I, I, I could have said no a lot of times, but I didn't. 
I could have said no to those relationships, but I didn't. I could have said no to those business deals that were a little shady, but I didn't. I could have said no to the thoughts, but I didn't. I could have said no to the I could have said yes to the battlefield. I could have said no to the roof. I could have said no to Bathsheba. I could have said no to the conversation. I could have said no to the bedroom. I could have said no to the plot. I could have said no, but I didn't. But God, here I am in my next step. God, I need you to help me. I need you to be grace to me. I can't fix it. You're my only fix. The only way out of the path of sin is the grace of God. That's it. So here's a great verse, and we read this verse a lot here because it's, it's important. It's, the, it's almost the crux. It's the thing that separates us as believers from every other world religion. If you're here and you study world religions in high school or college, let me tell you clearly what separates Christianity from every other philosophical religion, belief system, every other one in their own way will tell you, you have to live a certain lifestyle to achieve a certain position to deal with your own sin. We believe that you can't deal with your own sin, that we are broken in it and overcome by it. And a savior came from the outside in, was sent by the father and the son came to rescue us and he carried the sin on the cross. And the only way to get free of sin is not to be better, but to be broken and to find grace and forgiveness in the savior that came and died. So 1 John 1, 8, we already read it. If we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves. We're not living in the truth. Come on, everybody say it. But this is how you fall gracefully. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us. Come on, read it. From all wickedness. Here's the good thing about David. At one point, he just, he came around. One of the beautiful things that as you grow in your faith, you learn how the Bible fits together. You figure out like the book of Acts as Paul went preaching the gospel, like you can see in the book of Acts, how he wrote letters to the church in Philippi and Galatia. And, you know, the book of Colossians, like you see it all fitting together. One of the beautiful fits in scripture is that after David blew it, this is the wonderful thing. After more bad decisions on bad decisions, he finally came to the place that he realized I can't keep hiding it and I can't keep shifting it on someone else. It's mine. And King David's pens the 51st Psalm. Some of you know what it says, but out of what happened with Bathsheba and all of the temptation and all of his decisions to fall on the slippery slope of sin, he pens this. God, come and wash me. Purge me. Make me white as snow. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. And he makes this statement. And think about all of the people that he violated in his sin. Think about all of the people he hurt. Think about all the people that he sinned against. He sinned against the throne. He sinned against the people he was ruling over. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Joab. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against the other people in the battlefield that lost their life in his plot. Like you can go on and on and on. But you know what he said? God, it's against you and you alone that I've sinned. He wasn't discounting the people he hurt, but he recognized something that's so critical. And I'll close with this. That you can't fix this until you fix this. God, I need, I need you to give me grace. And in your grace, I'm going to start walking out my relationships better. So the way you fall gracefully 
you do it with grace. Your first decision after the fall is humility. Not hiding the shame, not shifting the blame. But God, it's on me. But you came to the cross to put it on you. So give me grace. How many of you in this room would say, Pastor Steve, there's, there's a place for grace in my life. Father, all over this room, God, I pray today in the name of Jesus, God, help us. God, when we miss the warning signs, when we're aloof on the roof like David, when we're not paying attention, when we miss the conviction of the Holy Spirit, God, when we find ourselves on the slippery slope of sin, God, I pray in that moment that God, our first response would just be humility. Lord, there's some of us in this room, God, we are, we are several steps down the path of a sinful lifestyle, a sinful mindset, behaviors and beliefs that are dishonoring you. But Lord, I pray that right now for all of us in this room, that you would show us that the answer is grace. We can't hold it. It's too heavy. And you came so we can give it to you. So Lord, we do that right now. By faith, God, we open up our lives to grace. With every head bowed and every eye closed, just for one more minute, I got to give you an opportunity because that's that verse, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not just a great verse for Christians. It's a great verse to become a Christian. It is the verse. And so if you're here and you've never, you've never given your life to Jesus, you've never said, God, I need grace. I want you to know this is not an invitation to be religious. It's an invitation to be forgiven. And if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus, I want you to know that he died to make not a way, but the only way for you to be saved. Because we've all sinned and we all need forgiveness. And Jesus made forgiveness possible by dying on the cross of Calvary and by coming back from the dead on the third day. The Bible says if we'll put our trust in who he is and what he's done for us, he'll forgive us and make us children of God. And so all over this room, if you've been in church your whole life, or you're new to church, maybe this is your first Sunday or you're watching online, you've never said yes to grace. I want to give you that opportunity right here. If you've never said yes to God's grace, you've never turned to him to be a child of God and have your sins forgiven. And today you want to make that decision. I want you to lift a hand real high. Say, Pastor, you pray for me. Today, today I want to give my life to Jesus. Today I want to walk out of here a child of God. Come on, lift it up real high all over this room if that's you. And just leave it up for one minute. I want to pray for you. Come on, a couple of hands. Anybody else? If you're here and you've never said yes to Jesus, today's your day. I see your hand all the way in the back, here in the middle. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You can pray your own way. I just know if you'll, if you'll pray to God and ask him, if you'll humble your heart, he'll hear you and he will forgive you. I'm gonna lead us in prayer. You can follow my prayer. You can whisper your own. So Father, grateful for your great sacrifice on the cross. We believe that you lived a sinless life that we couldn't live. And you died a sacrificial death in our place, on our behalf, so we could be forgiven. So Lord, we ask you just that, Lord, forgive our sin. And Lord, we just don't want to, we don't want apology, God. We, we want the grace to change. Help us to repent, to live the life different. So Father, we commit as we walk out of this place, not just forgiven, but to follow you. We thank you for grace. In Jesus' name.
And everybody who's thankful said amen. Amen. God bless you guys, man. We'll see you next week for week three.